This is Jeff Mochi with RCR Wireless News, and today we have Dan Pitt with us. Um, he is Executive Director of the Open Networking Foundation. Dan, thanks for joining us today. You're welcome, Jeff. Well, our first question is maybe tell us a little bit about how ONF and, by extension, SDN and NFE are helping traditional hardware engineers, hardware network engineers, start thinking like software developers. Well, first of all, the uh, hardware engineers that develop products are sort of a different breed from the ones that install and operate them in the network operators. And they're taking different tacks. Um, if you look at the, uh, uh, the hardware developers, a lot of them work with software already. Uh, I mean, all the hardware products have embedded software, but it's embedded software written really by the same vendor that makes the hardware. And so a lot of it is proprietary. Um, they have started using more and more even open source software to build their own proprietary products around. So that's a learning curve for them, just the way they've increasingly moved to merchant silicon for the chips instead of using all custom ASICs. On the operator side, telco or internet provider enterprise, um, they are learning a couple of things. One is that you can procure the software separately from the hardware. So they get to look around and start saying, how do I judge this software product on its software merits alone? and not by being simply bundled into the, to the hardware. Uh, many are being asked by their, their high executives to develop their own software and not just, not just buy it uh, bundled into the hardware. So there are operators that are sending, AT&T is sending you know, all their engineers in for internal training on software. Uh, I mentioned that, um, John Donovan mentioned the big emphasis on real-time distributed software skills. Uh, which is actually an interesting combination of networking and applications. Applications people tend to think about the application running somewhere, whereas the networking folks take an end-to-end -end view. And uh, okay. what we're seeing is kind of a, a meeting in the middle. The, uh, the uh, sort of the software realm of the network operators is kind of divided, I think, into two main pieces. One is all the infra infrastructure stuff, which has had embedded software. That's being split open by the work we're doing uh, in the Open Networking Foundation. So the control software is separate from the, uh, the forwarding plane hardware. But now that it's separate and running in their data center somewhere, it's starting to rub shoulders with software that's for a long time been in the data center, and that's their OSS and BSS software. And this software has traditionally been um, yeah, these products are monolithic, vertically integrated, and single sourced. And what we're helping them do is to think about the modules and the functions in these things and think about procuring the software modules for those functions also independently as part of the control and management planes of their network infrastructure. So as we gradually disaggregate the OSS and the, and the BSS, they will tend to see kind of an integrated viewpoint of how they build and manage their network with the choice of best of breed software, not only for all the things they've been doing for all these years, but for new types of services and new types of customer support for smaller and smaller groups of their customers than they were able to afford to do before. What are some of the uh, functions that can be moved to the management plane, uh, perhaps easier than others? Well, let's uh, talk about some of the basic ones that they're all interested in, and, uh, and that's our, uh, all the things they've been building, you know, you know, appliances for running them in the data center out in the network, things like access control lists and, um, and firewalls and load balancers and, and WAN optimizers. Um, 
a lot of these things uh, and, and, and the security functions can simply be reduced to a way of influencing, switching, and routing. How do you want certain traffic to flow through the network so that it gets where it needs to go, it's subject to the correct latency constraints, and it doesn't go where it's not allowed to go, especially if it's malicious traffic. Mm -hmm. So you can now integrate policy and security into your basic network path selection function, which is now done in a logically centralized place with SDN in the control plane and not autonomously and independently in every box you stick in the network. Mm -hmm. What, um, what are, how are carriers addressing their uh, traditional network operations center, which may have been accustomed to managing these physical network elements versus the, the internal IT group that has been managing some of these virtualized elements for a decade? And, 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 you know, and, and then you've perhaps got a third group who's been managing these BSS OSS uh, layers. How are those three groups coming together and what's ONF's position and maybe helping them come together? Well, we're trying to give them choice. Um, and by separating things like transmission from the control of that, um, they get to specialize in what they want to specialize in. And some carriers are just transmission specialists, and some are RF and, and EPC specialists. And um, others really are all about the customer relationship and billing. And, and, that's, and that's great. Uh, what, uh, what we want them to understand is that these things are now separable so that, number one, each part of the technology can accelerate at its own rate and, and they can deploy it as fast as they want to. And number two, they have more control over what it actually is and does. They're, they're not all used to that, and it's, it's going to be new skills they have to do to, to figure that out, but they will rely on third parties uh, to some degree. And for a long time, the major ones will continue to do that. Um, so it's, it's a gradual process for them, but it also is liberating to a lot of them that they can decide what services they want to offer when, and they can write or procure the software for those services and not wait for yet another box to ship that has, has more storage and has a new operating system and this feature in it. Um, and what's really interesting to see how they can become more competitive this way. In the past, if they wanted a network feature, they went to the vendor and said, can you add this feature? I want to do some kind of a special video multicast. And the vendor would say, well, let me think about that. Um, uh, and they would go look at it and they'd say if, positively, well, I can do it, but let me run it through some standards body first. because We have to coordinate with all these things. And then number two, uh, I've got to implement it in my proprietary operating system or multiple operating systems. And then I will sell it. And when I do, you know, I've invested so much. I need a big market. So I'm going to sell it not just to you, but to all of your competitors. So thank you for the idea. Uh, three years later, you can now offer it along with your competitors. So it's no longer a competitive advantage for the operator that thought of it. With the separation of software and hardware and forwarding and control, the operator who thought of it can implement it and deploy it alone. Got it. Again, coming back and just picking up on a part of my question around Historically, within a carrier, you had siloed organizations. You had the NOC that was looking at the network. You had the internal IT group that was looking at a lot of the BSS, OSS. Are, uh, you talked about liberation. Are you starting to see the, the walls come down and those groups start working together perhaps more than they have in the past because the IT guys have been for over a decade looking at virtualized elements and, and, and managing uh, virtual 
the IP packets across uh, these BSS OSS applications. And here are the network transmission guys who have been in the knock for, for 15 years looking at things the same way. Now they've got to look at them differently because these are now end-to-end -end packets that are going across the network. Are you seeing those groups work together? Um, sometimes they work together and sometimes there's a lot of friction between them. Uh, the networking industry as a whole has so much to gain from the advances in distributed computing over the last 15 or 20 years that it's a no-brainer for a lot of the people in IT to take over the networking. It's not so easy the other way around. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to see the gradual ascent of IT in running you know, telco networks and operator networks. Um, you still need transmission, but you don't need people doing manual configuration on, on equipment so much anymore. That's all going to be automated and orchestrated. Um, I think it was uh, uh, Verizon that's talking about that. Maybe they've already announced or something that their new CEO is going to come from their CIO. It would be the person who was their CIO. Or it's take the person who's been living and breathing IT all, all of his or her career and now put them in charge of the telco. And the telco network is going to become an IT operation. Already we're seeing it in their data centers, in their cloud services. And, and the way they manage their own IT, they're going to be offering their customers the same sort of services they're offering their own internal departments. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be something that the CIO has a lot of experience in already. Got it. Well, thank you for the input. You're welcome. So we're continuing our conversation with Dan Pitt, Executive Director for the Open Networking Foundation. Uh, Dan, uh, would you mind maybe walking us through the history of ON ONF, uh, their mission, and some of the key initiatives for 2015? Sure. So ONF was publicly launched four years ago last week. Uh, we came out of this sort of accidental effort at Stanford University, supported by major uh, operators, network operators, to kind of be able to somehow program the network the way they program you know, computers. Um, they opened up the network equipment, created a new interface inside that hadn't been named or opened up before. Uh, separates control, puts it in one box, a simple server, and the forwarding in another, which is optimized for packet or optical switching. And they talk with a language that was called OpenFlow. This was a PhD thesis at Stanford. Uh, but a lot of, you know, industrial representatives of the Clean Slate uh, Internet Design Research Program got very excited, and they said, gee, we should standardize this, and we got to make software-defined networking something that becomes successful in the industry. So they created the Open Networking Foundation, and they gave us this OpenFlow protocol, and we took it as our mission to help these operators um, leverage software-defined networking uh, in a commercial way. So we have uh, standardized the OpenFlow protocol, continue to update it, but we've taken a much larger mission to really uh, champion SDN and, and open SDN for commercial success. So we don't view ourselves as a traditional SDO by any means, standards development organization. We take on all the things we can do to help commercial success, bring operators and vendors together, for example, uh, hammer out working solutions, instantiate it in, in, in code and in, in real software when we can, and make sure that the open interfaces uh, and the open protocols are done at the right level of the architecture so that innovation can flourish above it in a creative way and below it in a creative way, whether it's in chips or control software or, or control applications or, or true business applications. Uh, what 
criteria do you use to, to deem something as being either technology or uh, software as being open? Well, that's a really popular word these days. Uh, it's in our name and it's in lots of other names and it's in product names. Um, and we think it has three essential characteristics to be truly open. First of all, it has to be published somewhere, which means, you know, you know uh, in a document, certainly could be in software, where anybody can come and see it and look at it without having to get anyone's permission. The second, it should be some sort of a standard, whether it's a de facto standard or a committee standard, doesn't really matter. And third, and really most important, it should not be controlled by a single party or a very small cabal of parties. It should be community def defined, derived, and improved. And, and that's the real challenge uh, for the industry because um, they've had protocol standards and, and you can see based on the sort of the, the lock-in experience of many operators that they don't have much of a say in it. And we want them to have more of a say because it's their future that's at stake and they know that. So we're, we're big advocates of you know, open SDN where it can really meet the needs of a variety of different types of network operators through separate provision of hardware and software and the creation of software by them or other parties. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about your board of directors? So our board of directors is all major network operators uh, and they really want to drive this bus. They formed us so that they could drive this thing. Um, we have, you know, eight major operators on the board and plenty of other, you know, operators as members among our 140 members. Uh, but we have four main data center internet operators, you know, Google, Facebook, Yahoo, and Microsoft, three major telecom service providers, North America, Europe, and Asia, and Verizon, Deutsche Telekom in Germany, and NTT Communications in Japan, and then a major enterprise, uh, Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. uh, the whole financial services industry views the network as a really critical part of their business. Um, you know, they're, they're regulated, they're under compliance, they have huge, you know, performance constraints, and so it's really important, and they wanted to be at the ground floor of, of this movement as well. We have two independent directors coming from the world of acad academia representing themselves also. What role do the equipment vendors have in the, the governance or uh, uh, programs that you initiate? We have huge participation by uh, the vendors as well as by the operators. Um, the operators are in charge of appointing the highest leaders, but we have uh, vendors, you know, leading our, our projects, our working groups, our discussion groups. They're on our CTO council. They're on our software leadership council. They're on our uh, testing leadership council and, and all the groups we have. Really, to make this a commercial success, we have to get the customers um, and and the suppliers to agree on practical, workable, engineering-based solutions that can get out in the marketplace quickly and be proven and experimented with and deployed quickly. So we have to bring these parties together. Okay. Um, maybe help me understand how you work with some of the other organizations that have the word open in, whether it be open stack or open daylight, and, and then how do you work with other standards bodies like 3GPP or IEEE. It just seems there's a lot of entities that are putting their hand into this NFE, SDN, 5G bucket. And, and just help me understand how, you, how, how those parties, more specifically, you work with these other groups. All right, so there's sort of two categories. There are the groups that are specific to SDN and the groups that are not. And the ones that are not, we want to help them and their you know, customers, however they define them, take advantage of the uh, benefits of SDN. 
So, you know, the IEEE is not doing really SDN-like stuff. Um, they do, you know, Ethernet standards and other things like that. That's the, the people we kind of interface with. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't change that stuff. We, by separating the hardware from the software, we allow those technologies to advance as rapidly as they can. Yeah. For the ones that are, you know, closer to SDN, such as, you know, Open Daylight, uh, uh, open network uh, lab and those we work really hand in glove with them where you know we share architectures with them we will do software that uh, uh, fills gaps that that's sort of outside their scope we actually have a very close dialogue with these organizations OpenStack we also have a, a very good dialogue with um, uh, they um, they're very much kind of a, a bottoms-up organization you want to do something, bring in the code. So there's a lot of scattered code, but we are looking to make sure that whatever we do in the, in the vein of, of open source software, and we do some of this, um, you know, enhances OpenStack to be a, uh, a cloud-based orchestration mm -hmm. software uh, scheme that takes full advantage of all the functionality you can get out of SDN, not just, you know, layer two VPNs. For, for the... Uh, um, OPNFV effort, the open platform for NFE. First of all, these people are, you know, they've been officers, they've been on our board, we work really closely with them to uh, make sure we can help them succeed by uh, the things that we produce for education, for architecture, or tools, or for software ourselves. Uh, we have a, a regular, I'm having regular dialogue with the leaders of, of all, these, all these organizations, and that includes the open source hardware groups, not just software, that's uh, primarily the Open Compute Project, you know, mm -hmm. championed by Facebook with lots of other people involved. And you mentioned uh, in the criteria of, of, of defining open, you mentioned that ultimately you'd like things to be standards-based. At what point do you see the programs you're developing be, being adopted by the standards bodies? Well, standards-based doesn't mean standards bodies defined. Um, and, in, and as we move into software, we, we net, you know, networking folks are learning what software is all about. And standards there um, are usually de facto standards, because if you don't like it, you can change it, especially if it's open source software. And you can iterate very quickly. You don't have to do it in advance before you put in chips and hardware and it take a three-year development process. So it's a totally different regimen for how you get things standardized. And de facto standards make a lot of sense, sense there. Um, where software stuff does become standardized in an official way, it's usually after it's already been deployed and popularized, and nobody really cares about it. Who cares about posits anymore, really? Okay. Uh, we do have an official MOU, for example, with uh, ETSI, the European Telecommunication Standards Institute, for their, um, uh, uh, for their ISG on, on network functions virtualization. And so what we're doing with them is developing some, some proofs of concepts and architecture and eventually some code on using, you know, OpenFlow and uh, SDN technologies for service chaining um, and for really being able to take as many uh, network functions and virtualizing them in a logically centralized place and then using SDN to effect what they decide down in the network switching itself. So, Dan, we've talked a lot about open and, and, and a bit about open source, but how does open source software ultimately get to market? Boy, that's a great question, Jeff. Uh, there are two primary, you know, vectors for getting it into the market. One is that companies collaborate on some open source project, a very popular meets a market need, and then anybody can go and download the software and deploy it, and it's free. 
The second mode, and we sort of learned that with, with, with a lot of the Linux distributions. The second mode is that they all, all these people collaborate to build the software, and it's very efficient in terms of development cost, because you don't have every company duplicating everything in this package. And of course, this is only for parts of, uh, for pieces of the, uh, really the protocol stack that do not require vendor differentiation. We're all gonna agree we'll use the same thing. But they all contribute to the development and then they take the code, some code, all the code, whatever they want into their companies and they build proprietary products around it. And that's an efficient form of development. But then they have proprietary products that are more than just software, just services and support, I should say, for the open source software. They're actually embedded into proprietary products. Um, that's how it's certainly going with things like Open Daylight and things are getting to the market quickly. Some operators are developing their own solutions based on open source software. And that's an interesting phenomenon as well, especially if operators have software skills and, and not all of them have had that level of skill set yet. Um, but I'm really optimistic that these open source efforts are going to give a lot of people experience in um, what should be done by open source software and how you make it into part of a reliable telco network. And we know the telcos uh, have a strong belief in, in reliability, at least according to their traditional definition. Well, over the past couple of weeks of our weekly show, Coders, we've talked about, or the topic has come up during the course of our conversations about web scale, hyperscale versus traditional telco 5.9 reliability. Um, when, you're, when you're talking about open source going to market, does it, uh, uh, does it come out of the gate being 5.9 reliable or, or web scale, or what's the iterative process to actually get to the reliability and scalability needed by your members as well as uh, other carriers around the world? Well, first of all, some open source projects are very scalable and reliable and some are not. And usually they mature over time. Um, but as, as the uh, networking and telecoms worlds move into software, the thinking changes about what it means to have this reliability. We know that they've all talked about the five nines reliability and they've applied on a box by box basis. But if you look at the, uh, the over the tops, um, it's the service reliability, not the box reliability that they think about. And as more and more services are really defined, dictated, and created inside a data center for a telco, they're going to follow the same practices that the software industry has followed. Namely, I'm going to have really reliable services built on unreliable hardware. <laughs> I know it's going to fail. I know how to take it out of service but I don't want my service to fall down. That's how distributed systems have succeeded. I mean, Jeff, you, you probably do some banking online, do you not? Sure. Yeah, so do you think your bank account is in one server somewhere? I have no idea. And if the, if the power supply fails, which is how they die, you lose your money? No. Probably not. Not gonna happen. It's all distributed, it's all backed up, and, and we've gotta get over this fear, you know, in the networking world that, oh no, we're putting into software, and, we're logically centralizing things and that's gonna cause failure and we have to do five. It's a whole different way of thinking. You know, SDN is not just yet another protocol. It's a total transformation in the way people are gonna think about networks. And as we're gonna see the integration of compute, storage, and networking inside data centers where more and more things happen, we're gonna find common tools to manage uh, compute functions, storage functions, and networking functions all through control software. 
Well, it's, uh, you know, I spent half my career uh, within a competitive phone company of one sort or another. And um, more often than not, I, w- I was kind of brought in as a change agent or started a, a DSL company or a CLEC, et cetera. And, um, you know, you, you, when you're recruiting teams together, you're finding folks that have the traditional telco background. And at the same time, in, in the wireline world, at least in the late uh, 90s and early 2000s, we're building these IP-based networks. And you're also running an internet company at the same time. And uh, it was always a clash of cultures. And, and so when I see the mobile networks going to IP from a TDM architecture, um, you know, some would argue that the telcos have their, you know, their, their head in the sand, so to speak, in terms of the way we've done it for 30 or 40 or 50 years. Uh, how is uh, the ONF, and I know you've talked a little bit about this, but how are you helping um, folks within the carriers be change agents and really adopt this, this, this transformation, which, by the way, has already happened in IT organizations and in many of the wireline internet companies for 10 to 12 years? So, you know, we do, you know, technical specification protocol specs. Uh, we do architecture. We do software, and we also do market education, and we're now getting into skills certification. So we talk to them a lot. We try to, try to, try to help them understand how their business is going to change, how it will be an opportunity for them as well as, as, well as a challenge. Um, and it's a long-term thinking process. And going from, you know, telco to, to IP networks is only half the battle. Because to go from IP networks to software-based operation is another stretch. You know, you talk to someone and say, oh, we got all this IP stuff. Um, well, go to software. You don't need the people who've done IP, you know, manual, you know, command line interface configuration stuff. That's going to go away. You need people with real software skills where you're going to automate and program everything. So that's another leap for these, for these folks. <laughs> and and they're, they're, some of them are a little frightened because, you know, they're getting bypassed by dark fiber and by the social media companies doing some local connectivity. Uh, and these companies are very fast moving. And if the major network operators want to compete, they're going to have to be fast moving also, which means they're going to have to figure out what their DNA is. And they'll concentrate on what they're good at, and they'll find plenty of people to procure services from or to offer services to. It's going to be a 10-year transformation of the service provider industry for sure, Jeff. Interesting. Well, Dan, let's take a short break, and then I'd like to come back and have you talk about some of the specific programs, orientation programs, and skill development programs you're offering your member companies. Will do. 